Law of Self-Defense content you are about to enjoy is presented for general educational purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice. If you are in need of legal advice, consult competent legal counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Hey folks, welcome to our ongoing coverage of the Minnesota murder trial of Derek Chauvin over the in-custody death of George Floyd. I'm attorney Andrew Branker for Law of Self-Defense, providing guest commentary and analysis of this trial for legal insurrection. Today's content is sponsored by CCW Safe, a provider of legal service memberships, what many people mistakenly call self-defense insurance. CCW Safe, in effect, promises to pay their members legal expenses if their member is involved in a use of force event, and those expenses start big and get bigger fast, folks. A typical aggravated assault charge would can happen if you simply point your gun at another person in self-defense, don't fire a shot, don't hurt anybody, can risk a 10 or 20 year felony sentence and cost as much as thirty to fifty thousand dollars in legal fees to defend, and that's just for the pre trial expense. If you don't have that kind of money stuffed in a mattress, just in case you're compelled to defend yourself or your family, it can be useful to have a financial partner standing behind you to make sure you have the legal resources you need to fight the legal battle the way you'd want it fought. Now, I've looked at all these types of services you might imagine, and I found that CCW Safe is the best fit for me. I'm a member. My wife, Emily, is a member. Whether they're the best fit for you is something only you can decide, but I do encourage you to take a look at what they have to offer by pointing your browser to lawofselfdefense.com slash ccwsafe. And if you do decide to become a member of CCWSafe, you can save 10% off your membership at that URL, lawofselfdefense.com slash ccwsafe, using the discount code LOSD10. That's LOSD for Law of Self-Defense and the number 10. Today, we saw testimony from a variety of state's witnesses, including wrapping up the testimony of firefighter Genevieve Hansen, a bystander witness, testimony from Christopher Martin, a clerk in the Cup Food store where Floyd passed the counterfeit bill that led to his arrest, testimony from Christopher Belfry, a driver who observed some of the events from his red SUV parked near the intersection, testimony from Charles McMillian an elderly man who was among the first bystander witnesses of the event, and testimony from Minneapolis Police Lieutenant Jeff Rugel, a foundational witness who manages the department's information systems. Really, the only substantively new evidence in the case came from the clerk, Martin, with some modest insights, I think unintentionally, added incidentally by Mr. McMillian. Most of the witnesses, however, did little more than add more emotional-laden baggage to the trial. Indeed, Mr. McMillian himself literally broke down crying on the witness stand to the point where the court recessed for a short time so he could recover himself. Uh, apparently, like Floyd, McMillian had also recently lost his mother. I won't spend much time on the testimony of Lieutenant Rugels because it's foundational in nature. For those who may not know, any evidence to be introduced in court must have a foundation, a reason to believe that the evidence is genuinely related to the circumstances of the trial. One cannot, for example, simply introduce a recording of a 911 call, but instead must first introduce testimony from a human being who is in charge of the 911 recording system who can attest to the genuineness of the recording. That's the necessary foundation required before the recording itself can be admitted into evidence. The Chauvin trial involves a great deal of audio, video, and computer records, 
within the control of the Minneapolis Police Department, and we can expect much of this to end up in evidence in this trial. In order for all this to be admitted into evidence, however, we must first establish foundation. And that's the role that Lieutenant Rugel, in charge of the MPD's information systems, served with his testimony in court today. I'll note that much of the testimony of Rugel involved playing a great many body camera videos in open court, as well as surveillance camera videos, the city's um, milestone camera system. So if you're interested in viewing those, this testimony would be a great source for that, uh, but kind of a lengthy way to do it. Perhaps at some point I'll break out the various video portions from the overall Rugel testimony for purposes of easy reference in the future. I'll also only briefly cover the testimony today of firefighter Genevieve Hansen, simply because her testimony itself was brief. Uh, and of Christopher Belfry, because he just didn't add much substantively to the case narrative. In fact, he wasn't even subject to cross-examination. So with that overview out of the way, let's dive in. So first, state's witness Genevieve Hansen, Minneapolis firefighter. You'll remember that Miss Hansen is a firefighter who was a bystander witness clad in sweat clothes of Floyd's arrest. Yesterday's court proceedings concluded with Judge Cahill dismissing the jury from the courtroom and chastising Miss Hansen for being hostile and argumentative with the defense during cross-examination. Miss Hansen's response to being scolded by the judge for being argumentative with the defense was to become argumentative with Judge Cahill. Judge Cahill was not amused. You can view this on-the-record scolding after which court recessed for the day, embedded in the text version of today's content. Then the court began the day today with the not yet completed cross-examination of Hansen by the defense. It seemed to me likely that someone had spoken with Hansen about her off-putting conduct the day prior because she was all yes sir, no sir today. As it happened, the defense really only had one additional question for her on cross— had she shown the police officers on scene anything identifying her as a firefighter? Her answer, she had not. And that was it for Cross of Hansen this morning. And you can view that cross embedded in the text version of today's content. Then the state took the opportunity to redirect asking Hansen if the reason she hadn't shown identification was because she didn't have it on her person, this being her day off. And she agreed that was the reason. It's unclear to me how that cures the fundamental issue here, however, which is that the officers on scene had no basis to believe she was a firefighter other than her word, the word of an unknown woman who was part of an angry crowd and who herself was referring to the officers using the B word. Hansen's redirect examination, the video of it, is embedded in the text version of today's content. I'll note as an aside that I suspect that one of the reasons the defense was so brief in this last bit of cross-examination of Hansen, why they only had that last question about whether she showed identification to the police, is that they did not want to give Hansen a chance to rehabilitate the very negative image she'd created by her conduct the day prior. If so, good move by the defense. Next up, we have state's witness Christopher Martin, who is a Cup Foods clerk, the clerk who dealt with Floyd. Uh, this is a 19-year-old black male, again, at the time, no longer, but at the time he was the clerk in Cup's food, to whom Floyd attempted to pass the counterfeit $20 bill that led to Floyd's arrest, and to whom Floyd's passenger in the Mercedes had similarly tried to pass a bad bill earlier in the day. Uh, again, Martin no longer works at Cup Food, but he did at the time. 
Martin's later testimony was largely that of a bystander witness because he saw the crowd outside and he joined them. Um, and that portion of the testimony added little value in the sense that we've already heard from numerous bystander witnesses with essentially the same viewpoint. His earlier testimony today, however, centered on his personal interactions with Floyd inside Cup Foods um, and also out by Floyd's car when trying to get Floyd to make good on the cigarettes he purchased with the bad bill. And that did add substantive value to the trial narrative. Unfortunately for the state, it seemed to me that this substantial value was to the benefit of the defense rather than the prosecution. Several key facets of Martin's testimony could really only be characterized as favorable to the defense, including one, Floyd had indeed passed a rather obviously fake counterfeit bill after his friend had failed to pull this off in the very same store with the same clerk earlier in the same day. Floyd appeared substantively impaired while in the store. Martin said he did look high. Third, Floyd was an unusually large man. It was what made Martin, the clerk, take exceptional notice of Floyd in the first place. And fourth, Floyd had refused repeated offers to simply make good on the bad bill, pay for his cigarettes with actual money, and the whole incident would be forgotten rather than have the police called. Certainly, it's hard to imagine how any of that testimony could be characterized as favorable for the prosecution. That said, the state knew the testimony was going to happen regardless, so the state did its best to underplay it. While Floyd may have been high, for example, he wasn't so high that he couldn't communicate verbally with enough dexterity to order cigarettes. On the other hand, Martin had told police investigators that Floyd's speech was noticeably delayed and slowed and that Floyd struggled saying words like baseball while in conversation with Martin, which is pretty messed up. The state also played a rather lengthy video of Floyd while he was inside the Cup Foods and throughout that video, Floyd's demeanor is one of someone apparently under the influence, swaying, weaving, odd stretching motions, wincing, lots of erratic upper body movements. At one point, he did a little dance or shuffle in the middle of the store while waiting for service at the counter. Uh, all this movement to the point that other store customers backed up to give Floyd additional space. Naturally, to the extent that Floyd was intoxicated, that state is favorable to the officers, as it would be consistent with privileging them to use a higher degree of force in the face of noncompliance than would otherwise be the case. It's simply more hazardous to deal with an intoxicated, noncompliant suspect. This is particularly the case given Floyd's remarkable size. Testimony in court has cited him as six foot three inches tall, although I've now seen Texas wanted posters that list his height as great as six foot six inches. And he was apparently about 230 pounds. These numbers don't really convey this size, as well as does seeing Floyd moving about a convenience store amongst other customers of more typical stature and size. Martin recounts that while he had immediately recognized as counterfeit the bill offered by Floyd's friend earlier in the day and rejected it as payment, when offered an essentially identical bill by Floyd, he initially accepted the bill as payment for cigarettes. But then knowing that he himself was going to be obliged by his boss to make good on the bad $20 bill personally, this was store policy for a clerk accepting counterfeit money, Martin had second thoughts about letting Floyd get away with this fraud. Martin alerted his boss, the manager, to the fake bill. And seeing that Floyd was still sitting in the driver's seat of the Mercedes SUV parked across the street, Martin's manager sent him out to ask Floyd to come back into the store and make good on the purchase. Martin 
went out, but Floyd refused to return to the store after being asked, refused even to discuss the matter. When Martin returned to the store, having been unsuccessful in his mission, the store manager sent out two different employees, followed by Martin, to speak with Floyd and make the same offer. Again, Floyd, for the second time, refused to make good on the purchase. It was only at this point that the manager had a store employee call 911 to report the crime. This is the call that resulted in the first two officers, Lane and King, arriving on the scene to be followed shortly by Chauvin and Tao, all to effect um, Floyd's arrest. Now, at this point, Martin's testimony reverted to that of being a sidewalk bystander because he joined the crowd outside. And again, that portion's of little additional value, so I'll skip over it here. But you can see the entirety of Martin's direct questioning by the state in the text version of today's content. Now, on cross-examination by defense counsel Eric Nelson, Martin was obliged to reaffirm statements he'd made to police investigators shortly after the event that Floyd appeared to him to be intoxicated during their interaction in Cup Foods. Nelson also had Martin affirm that the store manager carried a pistol in his back pocket. The pistol is sizable. It's quite clear and obvious in the surveillance video reviewed during Martin's testimony. And that, of course, undercuts the insinuation by the state uh, and one they've made through previous witnesses that the neighborhood of Floyd's arrest was reasonably safe and in no way high crime in nature. Naturally, to the extent that the neighborhood could be characterized as unusually dangerous, that would again contribute to the officer's reasonable perception of the need to use perhaps more force and be more focused on the gathering angry crowd and thus distracted from care of Floyd than might otherwise have been the case. So again, good for the defense rather than the prosecution. Further, Nelson had Martin recount how he described to investigators the neighborhood around Cup Food as a hot block to indicate that a lot of situations happened in the neighborhood. It's perhaps worth noting here that Martin not only worked at Cup Foods, he and his mother lived in an apartment immediately above the store, so he would be intimately familiar with criminal events in the immediate neighborhood. It was here during cross-examination that Martin discussed, or Nelson referenced in some detail, how Floyd's speech was slow and delayed, and he had difficulty saying the word baseball. Nelson also highlighted that whereas Martin had immediately rejected the fake bill offered by Floyd's friend earlier in the day on the grounds that it was obviously fake, he initially accepted an essentially identical bill from Floyd, despite agreeing that it was equally fake in appearance. Could the difference in response be due to Floyd's unusually large size and intoxicated demeanor? Both factors that officers would also consider in making use of force decisions when Floyd refused to comply with lawful arrest. If such considerations were reasonable for the clerk, could they be unreasonable for the police? In a moment of testimony that I'll concede maybe laugh out loud, when asked about his perception of the anger of the bystander witness and MMA security expert, Williams, Martin told Nelson that it wasn't so much that Williams was angry, he was just defending himself because Officer Tao had pushed him. This would be when Williams aggressively advanced off the curb into the street and towards Tao and the other officers, and Tao held out his hand to stop Williams' progress. Self-defense indeed. Nelson also managed to get Martin to describe how he physically restrained another bystander witness who was apparently sufficiently heated and angry to require physical restraint. This again undercuts the state's claims and the claims of the same sort made by some of the state's witnesses that the crowd was in no way conducting itself in a manner the officers might reasonably perceive as threatening, au contraire, by the witnesses' own testimony. 
The cross-examination, the video of that of Martin is embedded in the text version of today's content. Now, the state did do a very brief redirect of Martin in which they had Martin describe Floyd as having a friendly demeanor in the store, just living life. Unfortunately for the state, Martin closed these remarks by saying, but he did seem high. There was a similarly brief re-cross examination by the defense in which it was once again emphasized how readily Martin had rejected a counterfeit bill offered by Floyd's friend, but then reluctantly accepted an equally obvious fake bill from Floyd himself. And that was that for the state's uh, witness, Christopher Martin, at the time of the events, a clerk at Cup Food. Now, the next witness was Richard Belfry, who was a driver of a red SUV. Uh, As already noted, I'm not going to spend much time on this witness. Uh, He was a 45-year-old black male, but he didn't add much in terms of value to the narrative. Indeed, the defense did not even bother to cross-examine Belfry. Uh, In brief, Belfry and his fiancée had driven a cup food to buy, well, food. Uh, He drove a red SUV and initially pulled up behind Floyd's black Mercedes at the curb outside China Wok restaurant, just in time to observe Floyd's interactions there with officers King and Lane. Uh, During this time, his fiance went into Cup Food to pick up their meal. Uh, Belfry took the opportunity while parked behind Floyd's Mercedes to make a short video recording of what he saw. When he heard sirens, he grew concerned about ending up trapped in that spot, decided to move his vehicle. So he drove it across the street, parked at the curb opposite, uh, or I should say beside Cup Food where his fiance had gone inside to get their food order. Uh, She rejoined him now. Uh, And while parked at that curb, the opposite side of the street, uh, Belfry took the opportunity to make another short video recording, this time of Floyd now handcuffed, being walked across the street to the squad car outside of Cup Food. Shortly after this, Belfry left the scene. Now, neither of Belfry's two short videos um, nor his personal observations added really anything to the narrative of the case that isn't better noted from other sources of evidence. But nevertheless, I've included video of Belfry's uh, direct examination. There was no cross uh, in the text version of today's content. The last substantive witness of the day was state's witness Charles McMillian, an elderly bystander witness. Uh, Charles McMillian, a 61-year-old black male, provided very emotional testimony about the events of that day, at one point breaking down and sobbing in tears to the point that Judge Cahill recessed the court for a short time to allow him to recover. All of that, by the way, appeared to me to be completely genuine. Uh, McMillian's testimony as a bystander witness was a bit different than that of the other bystanders because he was on the scene well before the rest of the crowd began to gather. He was the first bystander witness uh, by a significant period of time. He's seen in the videos of standing in the street, but a good 10 or 20 feet, it varies over time from the squad car. He never attempts to approach the officers in any aggressive way, whatever. Uh, McMillian can be heard in the various videos, in fact, as the voice urging Floyd to comply, not resist, to get in the squad car, to make things easy for himself. When asked his motivation for this, uh, today McMillian said he'd had his own interactions with police and had learned that once the cuffs were on, it was best to just accept that you were going to be arrested and to stop resisting. Unlike many of the prior bystander witnesses, McMillian gave me no sense that he was attempting to slant his testimony in a manner to favor the prosecution. Certainly, it's McMillian's perception that Floyd had been badly treated by the police and perhaps even that the police were responsible for Floyd's death. He's certainly not pro-defense, but McMillian appeared to be telling the whole truth as he believed it. 
Nevertheless, there were several moments during McMillian's testimony that I felt very much favored the defense, the officers, despite the emotional scene of McMillian's breaking down in tears on the stand. Uh, first, at one point, uh, the prosecution's rolling body camera footage showing the officers moving towards Floyd. This is during direct questioning of McMillian. Um, and as the officers position themselves to do a full body restraint, Floyd deliberately kicks out at the officers with both legs. I personally had not seen that before, at least don't recall seeing it before. It was this kicking conduct that led to the officer sending Tao to look for ankle hobbles in the back of the SUV and why they were so determined to restrain Floyd's legs from that point forward. Second, while being questioned by Prosecutor Eldridge, McMillian was asked how Floyd appeared to him, appeared to McMillian while being restrained with Chauvin's knee on Floyd's neck. I expect Prosecutor Eldridge was hoping she'd get a reply along the lines of he looked like he was being killed. Instead, what Eldridge got was McMillian stating that Floyd had foam running out of his mouth. Or perhaps stunned Eldridge responded with foam in his mouth? And McMillian immediately affirmed, yes, foam in and out of his mouth. Well, folks, foaming in the lungs, and by extension, out the mouth, is, of course, a notable indication of pathological fentanyl overdose. This would obviously reinforce the likely defense narrative that Floyd was killed not by Chauvin's knee, but by the threefold fatal dose of meth fentanyl speedball drug cocktail he rapidly ingested to avoid its discovery by the police while he was being arrested a few minutes earlier. That was about all the substantive value contained in McMillian's testimony on direct. When it was time for Nelson to conduct cross-examination, he briefly consulted with Chauvin, then announced he had no questions. This was likely the smart play. It seemed to me there would be little upside to cross-examining the elderly and emotionally distraught McMillian, uh, much as was the case with nine-year-old witness minor number two, and potentially a lot of downside if aggressive cross proved necessary. So the state's direct of Charles McMillian, again, there was no uh, cross-examination, but the state's direct, the video of it, is embedded in the text version of today's content. Finally, the last witness uh, today was state's witness Jeff Rugel, a lieutenant with the Minneapolis Police Department. Uh, he was called for foundational purposes, as already described, and that being the case, it doesn't seem useful to cover his testimony in any detail. The individual videos introduced during the testimony may prove useful, but if so, I'll break them out individually so we can discuss them substantively in appropriate con context. Uh, finally, after Lieutenant Rugel, uh, the jury was dismissed for the day, but he was kept because there was some additional court business. In particular, the defense... Nelson wanted to admit into evidence fuller length versions of the body camera and city surveillance camera footage than the state had offered into evidence. The state had offered abbreviated versions of that footage. Uh, further, the defense wanted that video introduced in such a manner that it could be manipulated using the MPD's own software systems, which allowed for a zoom and pan ability not equaled in the versions the state had offered into evidence. Nelson offered his version of the videos to Cahill, Judge Cahill, for review. Uh, the state said they had no objection to the video on foundational grounds. How could they? They just conducted a very lengthy direct questioning of Lieutenant Rugel precisely to establish foundation for all these videos. But they did say there would likely be admissibility objections later. Now, why would the prosecution want to object to the admissibility of the video gathered by the body and surveillance cameras owned and controlled by the Minneapolis the Police Department itself? Good question. Things that make you go, hmm. 
Okay, folks, that's all I have for you today. Join us again tomorrow right here at Legal Insurrection for our ongoing live coverage of Minnesota versus Chauvin. Until then, I'm attorney Andrew Branca for Law of Self-Defense, guest commenting and analysis for Legal Insurrection. Stay safe.